In our study of the scriptures, we often run across rather puzzling passages that leave us wondering, how in the world does that apply to us in the 21st century? Next on Abounding Grace, see how an understanding of context and culture is necessary before we make application from the Bible. This is amazing grace. Welcome to Abounding Grace. We're glad to have you with us. The Jewish customs in the Apostle Paul's day were quite a bit different than what we find in today's culture. For example, they couldn't uncover their heads in public because it was dishonoring to their husband. While the specifics may be cultural, there are some lessons which are timeless. Pastor Ed Taylor will show us that it's important to consider both context and culture before applying God's word to our lives. Here he is in 1 Corinthians 11. Over 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to write two words that will always remind you of the essence of this text whenever somebody comes to it, because it is one of those passages after verse 1, of course. Verse 1 is very easy to understand. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's easy. Paul is talking about all these wonderful things in his life. He's encouraging us and the Corinthians how to use their liberty and their freedom. And he, at this point, just finally says, hey, imitate me. You want an example? Imitate me. Not just copying me, but as I follow Jesus, pick up on that and imitate me. And it's powerful. It's wonderful. So after verse 1, though, write these two words. You ready? Context and culture. We need to understand the context and the culture before we make any applications from this section. Really, the entirety of the Bible is best understood as you keep these two things in mind, the culture in which it was written and the context or the audience. When was it written, to whom it was written, and why? The Bible, every passage, every story, every parable, every teaching, they all have a cultural context. What that means is, is that the Bible isn't subject to your interpretation or mine. It's not possible for us to all have private interpretations. And yet when you start to talk about the Bible, that's what comes up, isn't it? Well, you know, you believe this and I believe that and I see this and you see that. The interpretation of the Bible is the right one. Whether you and I have it or not, there is a right interpretation. I mean, there could be the interpretation of the word, there could be yours, there could be mine, but you and I need to yield to what the Bible says and what it means. Again, you can jot this down in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Well, why don't we just turn there? Turn over. It's to the right. Because you might want to cross-reference this with this particular passage. It's so controversial, but it doesn't need to be. You know what I've found is that people love to make controversies out of the word. And during the controversy, it's sort of an excuse not to obey. So, well, let's just make it a big controversy. And let's argue about it. And let's talk about it. Let's write books about it. And I'm always coming back to, well, what is the Lord telling you to do? And why aren't you doing it? Well, you know, that's a very controversial text. Well, it may be controversial, but that's no excuse not to do what the Lord's telling you to do. And maybe just stepping aside and going, hmm, that's an interesting understanding, an interesting text. 
I'm not going to get stuck on the ones I don't understand. I'm just going to obey the ones I do understand. I think that was Mark Twain. He says, you know, in the Bible, it's not the, bi- not the passages that bother me the most or not the ones that, that I don't understand. The ones that bother me the most are the ones that I do understand. And the Bible is so simple. So notice, chapter 1, 2 Peter, verse 19. Peter is establishing the weight of the word. He's establishing the trustworthiness of God's word. And he says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Or I think in the old King James, it it says the sure word of prophecy. Either one, beautiful way of looking at the word of God. We have that prophetic word. We have the sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, and this is the key, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means God had a meaning when he prophesied his word, when the word was written, when it was inspired. There is a meaning to it. It's not a private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, or as Paul would tell Timothy, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as God moved upon them. And although many people do this, church, let us not be in that camp that take the word of God and twist it to our own destruction. It'd be very easy, and many people do. They start taking this verse, this verse, this verse, and they take them all out of context, put them into a bowl, stir them up, and come up with a false teaching. And then when you start to talk to them, they go, you know, that's not what that verse means. Well, you know, and then they'll go over here and you over here and over here, over here, instead of just letting it say what it says. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to let it say what it says to the church in Corinth. And then once we understand that, then we're going to be able to pull out of it how we can use it and what it might look like for us. Okay, so verse one, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The chapter breaks in verses were added very, very late for us very recently, just a few hundred years ago. And so this is an unfortunate one because I think verse 1 really fits at the end of chapter 10. His summary, his conclusion. The believers in Corinth would just read this straight through and it would make perfect sense to put it at the end. But at the end of his teachings on Christian liberty, Paul tells the believers, if you want to see all this in action, follow me. Not as a perfect example, Paul's not elevating himself above Jesus. He's saying, watch my life, and as you see me imitate Jesus, as you see me imitate Christ, as you watch my life, you then can imitate me. And it's not just imitation and flattery. Go, well, you know, Ed lifted up his right hand, so now I need to lift up my right hand. And, you know, Ed has got a big Bible with a black cover. I should get a... It's not that kind of imitation. It's that spiritual life that you pick up on things in people's lives that are really fruitful, and you begin to adopt them in your own life. One that I can tell you as a new believer, I used to serve in the children's ministry for many, many, many years. And as I served alongside the children's ministry pastor, I watched him in how he ministered to people. I watched him how he served the teachers. I watched him how he served the kids. I watched him as he ministered to the kids and the parents. I watched him in the good times. I watched him in the difficult times. And one of the things that I picked up on him is that when I was close enough in, in the regard to his conversations he was having, rarely, rarely would you ever hear him say, I'll pray for you. I mean, as I think back and all the times I served with him, I really can't think of a time, I'm sure it happened, but I can't think of a time where he ever communicated to someone, I'll pray for you. You know what he did? He prayed for them in that moment. And I picked up on that. 
Because I know in my life what I would do is I would tell people, you know, you'd share with me right now and you'd say, you know, I'll pray for you. And you know what I do? I forget sometimes. So that the next time in the hallway that I saw you the following week and there's a dialogue that comes up, the question would inevitably come up. Did you pray for me? And now I put myself in a position, am I going to tell the truth? Or am I going to keep saying, oh man, I forgot and I meant to and I had well intentions and that only had to happen a few times when I started to watch. You know, he never really, Pastor Rudy never really had to do that because he was ministering in the now. And it wasn't just that, hey, I'll pray for you later because indeed that prayer life, you start to pray for people and it does extend beyond a hallway. But the best thing to do is you know, I'm going to pray for you right now. What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? I'm going to pray for you right now. Because that way, if I do forget and the busyness of life does take over, we know that we sought the Lord right here and now. And that's something I picked up. It was never anything that we just sat down. I mean, I use it now as an opportunity to teach and say, hey, this is a great thing to do. But the way I picked it up was just watching. And there's a lot to be said about watching people. You should always have people in your life that are taking you farther than you are. And you should always have people in your life that you're taking farther than they are. So you have someone that you're bringing up and you're discipling, and you also have somebody that you're looking to. You might hear the word mentor in today's vernacular. That's what they're trying to describe. There's somebody in your life that you look to, you ask questions, you watch, you bounce things off of, and then you also become that person. And that's really what he's saying here. Imitate me. I want my life to be worthy of imitation. Not perfect, but worthy of drawing you into a deeper, more committed, obedient life in Jesus. And what things aren't worthy of imitation, don't. But what things that are, are, they'll bless you as you and I grow in the things of the Lord together. Now, verse 2. I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. I love Paul here. You see it back and forth in the study here in Corinthians, but I love it here because he is spiritually sensitive. He has just finished a heavy section on Christian liberty. He's already had in the first few chapters some really negative, hard things to share. That there weren't things that he could praise them more. And then, you know, in this, I don't praise you. And that's heavy to receive. And as he opens this section, he says, but I do praise you. And there needs to be a balance. There needs to be a healthy dose of praise. It can't just be all negative all the time. And this section opens up with praise. Basically two things he praises them on. He says, brethren, I rem- that you remember me. So he was real encouraged that the church remembered him and appreciated him. And then the second one is that they were keeping the traditions. They weren't keeping all of them, but they were keeping some of them. Now, number two is sort of hard to understand, but the truth is clear. I don't want you to miss this. Especially in your life, if you tend to look at your life and magnify your failures, which is very, very easy to do. If you're one to magnify your failures, then you don't really need anyone to come to you and and talk to you about what mistakes you've made. You already know what mistakes you've made because you magnify them. It's kind of the world that you dwell in. Oh, I could have. You know, when you magnify your failures, you live in the world of could have, would have, should have. Whatever would have you can think of after that. You live in that, man, I could have and I would have and I should have. But there are things that God's doing in your life. Just like there were things God was doing in the Corinthian church. 
these things were heavy duty. There was major spiritual warfare going on in that church. The leadership had gone sideways. There was sexual immorality. The church was, was rejoicing. We're going to find in our next section together how they took advantage of communion. I mean, oh, it would be hard. And yet there were things they were doing well. There were things that they were keeping. Now that word traditions, you might want to circle it because next to it, I want you to know what it doesn't mean. Today when churches speak of traditions, they speak of, usually it means man-made teachings that supersede the scriptures. And that's not what Paul's teaching here. He says, hey, I know what the word of God says, and then what I told you, it becomes a tradition and it supersedes what the Bible says. And we're just as prone to that as anyone out there that man-made teachings or man-made philosophies start to supersede the scriptures where you might say, you might come to me and say, hey, Pastor Ed, why do we do that? And my answer to you is, well, we've always done that. And then your mind is, wait a minute, I don't really see that in the scriptures. And then I have a choice. Either I can help you find it in the scriptures and say, oh, and then we kind of meet in the middle and we understand and I answer your question. Or I can say, well, this is just the way we've always done it. And then what is it leaves us? I, I left the authority of the word of God and I've built some man-made tradition. Now, there may be those in your life that have some interesting ways of worshiping because it's what their church has taught them. For example, I'll give you a good example of that. I'll, I'll paint a picture for you. You may have someone in your life that you love dearly and you know they love God dearly, but there is in their practice of worship things that are not in the Bible, things that are outside of the Bible, even things that are anti-Bible. For example, you may have a friend that you say, why exactly is it that you worship Mary? Which is a valid question to ask. Just like anyone could ask you, why do you do what you do? You, you can open the word and say, this is that which is spoken by the word of God. It would be great to do that. But when you ask somebody that, they may say, well, it's the churches, and they mean that with a capital C, the church's teachings. And you go, well, okay, then where did the church teach you? Can you show me in the word? Can you show me any example in the Bible where Mary is worshipped, where Mary is venerated, where Mary is put on a place next to Jesus or even higher than Jesus? Can you show me a place where she has in the Bible, she has that title, Mother of God? Can you show me anywhere in the scriptures? And of course, we know that there won't be anywhere in the Bible. Just the opposite. As you start to search through the life of Mary, you find her to be a very humble woman who cries out to her Savior in her own song, in her own rejoicing. But the discussion is going to go back and forth between what the Bible says and what the church teaches. What the traditions of man teach. Please be careful that you and I do not elevate traditions of man over the clear teaching of God's word. It's going to bring great problems into your life. As I have the opportunity to host Gino's show, that is a constant, I already know where we're going to go when these kind of topics come up. There will be an elevation of tradition. You know, that's the mistake that the Pharisees made. Jesus would come to the Pharisees and condemn them. Woe to you guys, because what you're doing is you're teaching the commandments of men as the doctrines of God. And that's not good. It's not good for any organized church. It's not good for us. In order for the Holy Spirit to really have a reign in our lives, we need to break through from a religious mold and live passionately for him personally. 
allowing God's word to dictate to us, not the traditions of man, because traditions in and of themselves aren't bad. Sometimes we look at the word tradition and we, we think, well, it's just a tradition, we need to get rid of it. Not necessarily. It's not that traditions are bad. As a matter of fact, here Paul commends them, you're doing the right thing. For instance, in a tradition that we could call it a tradition is that we partake as a body, as a church family, communion. It's traditional. It happens week after week. It happens regularly. Why? Jesus said so. And when you keep it, it's a good thing. You could call it a doctrine. You can call it a tradition. You could call it an exhortation from Jesus. So it's not that all traditions are bad, but some that supersede the scriptures, we need to be careful. Now, turn back just a few pages. I want you to compare this with chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verse 6. Paul's encouraging them. It hasn't all been tough. There's some things that they were doing right. And it was really good that they understood that they were doing things right. Notice verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. And here's the key. That you may learn in us, again, the same type of truth, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that you should learn in us not to think beyond what is written. It's a good truth to take in that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And what Paul's not referring to, these traditions, are not the traditions of man, but instead the holy scriptures, the teachings of God. What Paul would tell young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It was one of the greatest errors that the religious leaders made. Now, verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man, this is back in chapter 11 now, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. For if a woman is not covered, for six, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so the man is also through the woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Now, some of us don't need to worry about that. That's not a problem. You're never going to have long hair. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Great section of scripture. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. We want to look at this. This is a lot to think on, especially those of you that have read ahead. One of the areas in the church in Corinth, culture, context. Let's look at context first. One of the problems that was happening in the church was a disorderly conduct in their gatherings. 
We're going to see it more with communion. We're going to see it more in this church with the exercising of the gifts. We're going to see that Paul is going to tell them later that God desires to have things decent and in order. And this is where he begins to talk to them about decency and order. Some women in the Corinthian church were acting out in their freedoms, because that's the context. Some of the women were acting out in their freedoms beyond what was proper and edifying for the congregation. There was disorder, we notice, in the prayer meetings, and then we'll see it later, there was disorder in communion. Paul wants us to understand that there's order with the Lord. There's creative order. The women in the church in Corinth were liberated by the gospel, just like you ladies today have been liberated by Jesus Christ. You don't need a movement or a society or any type of man-centered movement to be liberated because in Jesus Christ, you're free. Tremendous freedom are afforded to women. The gospel of Jesus not only freed women, but it freed men, it freed families, it freed boys, it freed girls, it freed slaves, it freed Jews, Gentiles. The gospel brings great freedom and hope to anyone that receives Jesus. See, that's one of the things that God uses to get your attention. Did you know that? I'm speaking to those of you that don't have a faith in Jesus right now. For those of you that do, you can look back and go, you know that you're right. There was a constriction in my life. There was a hindrance in my life. There was an addiction in my life. There was part of my life where I didn't have freedom. I thought I had freedom, but all the decisions I made just brought me into slavery. Slavery to what? To sin and sinful behavior. For some, it was worse than others. For some, your slavery to sin got you in a lot of trouble in this world, outwardly. You're getting in trouble with the law. You're getting in trouble with people. You're getting in trouble with school. You're getting in trouble at work because you were living a life of disorder, not freedom. You were living a life of slavery. How do I know that? Even though I don't know your personal story, how can I say that with authority? Well, because Jesus said it. Jesus said that you have a choice to present yourself either as slave to sin. Really, he asked the question. He says, don't you know who you present yourself to? That's who slave you are. So when you and I, even as believers, decide to present ourselves to sin, immediately in that instant you become a slave to that sin. Now God can free you, but the problem is is that you're dabbling in these areas thinking you're all in control and you're absolutely in that instant. It probably even happened before when you made the decision in your mind, before the action ever happened, boom, you became a slave to that sin. You think about it, and then after the fact you're wondering if you're going to be found out, you want to cover it up, or even more, sin has that tantalizing temptation, you want to go do it again. And again, before you know it, you don't even care anymore. And so outside of Jesus, we lived in as absolute slaves to this world. We lived in this world. We lived for this world. And for some of you, it brought great outward problems. I happen to be one of those people. Great outward problems. Not only with the law, but with all the people that God brought into my life. But you know, it doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't always bring problems outwardly. You could be a really good person and a really good friend and you can have really good relationships but have problems inwardly. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so it all has the same result. We're separated from God, hopelessly lost. But the symptoms could be outward. They also could be inward. Maybe the sin in your life has brought you to hide in a closet, to stay inside, to stay away from people, to to beat yourself up, to, I mean, you, you could tell. If we had you come up, you could tell me what it means. Things are going good with people, but inside you're in turmoil. You're just crushed. And you see, when you repent of your sins, 
when you turn your back on that slavery, because you can in the power of Jesus. The Holy Spirit might even bring, I'm mentioning the word sin, and I'm not mentioning any sins right now. The, the, the Lord, through his spirit, could be bringing great, heavy conviction on your life right now. You could feel and sense the work of God's spirit coming on you in the sense of bringing conviction to you so that you can make a decision to forsake sin, to have freedom. Thanks for studying alongside of us on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. If you'd like to hear this message from 1 Corinthians again, go online at calvaryco.church. Another way to listen to Ed's teachings is through our app. Search for Calvary Aurora in the App Store or Google Play. It's free, too. We've picked out a wonderful book by Christopher Yuan this month. It's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. In it, he explores the concept of holy sexuality, both chastity as you're single and faithfulness in marriage. Whether you want to share God's truth with someone who struggles in this area or you're wrestling with questions yourself, order a copy of Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. We're making it available to those that support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. Give us a call at 877-30-GRACE. That number again, 877-30-GRACE. And please remember, we are listener-supported. Simply put, that means we look to our listeners to help us with the costs of being on the radio. Well, glad you've taken time out to study 1 Corinthians with us. And be sure to join Pastor Ed Taylor tomorrow for Abounding Grace when we'll pick up where we left off in this very helpful and applicable epistle. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.